I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we have been, um, on most Sunday nights recently, I guess the last couple weeks we took a, a little bit of a detour, but we have been working through this series called Bless This Home, looking uh, at our homes through the light of God's Word and asking God to help us to build homes uh, that honor Him. And, you know, of course, one of the things to remember is that the definition of a home doesn't matter if you have, if you live by yourself, if you're married, if you have kids or you don't have kids. When you establish a home and your home life, um, it has to be centered on the things of God. And so we spent some time last time, in the last couple of messages, we spent some time looking at how we parent our children, specifically our older children uh, with our teens and preparing them to, to live in a way that honors God. And so tonight and next week, we want to look at this idea of the new life home. Yes, that's like a pun off the new home life, okay? So uh, this is the new life home. How do we take the things of God and live them out within our homes and then outside of that to other people? And so we're going to look at this passage. It's a, a, a pretty important passage that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 4, about how those who know Jesus Christ are to live. Um, If you go all the way back to the beginning of this series, I told you that the most important relationship in any home is your relationship to God. And and by that, it doesn't matter if you're um, your dad, mom, husband, wife, by yourself, teenager, child, in your life, the most important relationship in your life, in your home, is your relationship to God. And all of these things come out of that, and especially Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul writes, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt communication, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, in in our homes, in many ways, our home lives that we experience as children uh, have an effect on the way we we live out our own lives. Um, When a man and a woman come together in marriage, they bring with them two different backgrounds and two different histories of how they were raised. And then then the process begins of melding these two backgrounds together. And, and soon, they shape their own home, they establish their own traditions, and then begin to see the fruit of such things in their own lives. Sometimes, homes are carbon copies of what one grew up with. Things are said like, well, it was good enough for mom and dad, it's good enough for us, right? Um, well, that's the mentality. Other times, there's a vehement, a vehement reaction the other way. You know, well, I am never going to do things the way my parents did them, right? 
How many of you have heard or said or you've met people who've heard or said some of those things, right? Um, Inevitably, what happens is, as we mentioned, the fruit of our home life policies begins to come out in how we react to one another, how our kids interact with us and with others, and in the tones used by those in our homes. Sometimes we begin to look at the fruit in, the, in our lives, in the life of our spouse, in the lives of our kids, in the lives of, of other people around us that we're interacting with, and, and the conversations that we're having, and we say, man, I don't really like what I'm seeing, what's coming out of our home. And so we make efforts to correct that. And as always, Scripture has the answers. That is always the case. And here in our passage tonight, you see a calling to new life in Christ. That is, if we know Jesus Christ, these things that Paul says here should characterize our lives and then by, token, by, by the same token permeate our home. So let me tell you from the outset, this passage that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 is not a this is how you have a godly home passage, okay? This is not the context within it is written. It is written in the context of this is how you as a Christian live out the new life in Christ. But guess where that has application? In your home. I mean, that's the first place you have to go. Um, and then Paul talks about here applications within the church. So previously in Ephesians chapter 4, if you were to back up just a few verses, Paul deals with the nature of living the new life in Christ. He has shown in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, I'm not going to read them tonight, you can go back and look later, that the only way to live out the new life is to follow these three steps. Put off, renew, put on. Put off the former things of the old man, renew your mind, renew your mind in the scripture, renew your mind in the Holy Spirit, renew your mind in things of God, and then put on the new habits, the new ways of an obedient child of God. Put off, renew, put on. And as a Christian, we have to learn these things that we can please and honor God with our lives. And so here, Paul gives in this section now specific sinful actions of the old man. And, and what we see is if we're going to deal with our sin in our homes, we have, and, and, and any part of our lives, we have to identify our sin. We have to call it for what it is. Call out that sin and say, this is wrong. This is what God says about it. And we're going to do something with it. Paul then gives the action which should be taken instead of, do, of, of, of that sin. And what we see is that that living the new life of the new man means replacing sinful actions with godly ones. And finally, in this section, Paul gives us the reason why we live this way. So what you're going to see in each one of these, there's five of them. We're going to look at three of them tonight. Paul says, don't do this. Stop doing this. This is sinful. Do this instead. This is what pleases God. And here's why you do that. Uh, because, Because of these reasons. And what we see is that Living for the Lord always has incredible benefits. Our homes can be places of wonderful spiritual growth, and we can experience harmony in the home. If we practice these things, we will experience a new life home, one that reflects the Savior of men. Christian homes are a proving ground for and should be the primary place we display godly living. The proving ground of godly living is the home. The primary place where you display honoring God is in your own home. 
Unfortunately, all too often, that's the place we give the biggest pass, right? Well, I live one way at home, but when I go to church, or I'm with this person or that person, I live a completely different way. Because that matters. I need to look different here. I need to look better here at church or with this person or with that person. But I'm with all these people at home who know me the best, and so you let your guard down and you don't live in a way that honors God. But it's just the opposite. That's a place where we should begin, where we should see those things enacted primarily in our lives. And we should be living them out. So let's break apart this passage and see what Paul has to tell us how we live these new lives to please and honor God. Verse 25, Paul, the first thing Paul says that we are to be doing as children of God is we are to be speaking truth. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So we're going to look again. What do we put off? What do we put on and why we do that? First is to put off. And what is it that we're to put off here? We're to put off lying. Putting away lying. A lie is any attempt that we make in our lives to deceive someone else. Any attempt in our lives to deceive someone else. You could be making a statement that's contrary to fact. You know, usually that's the big one, right? You say you're going to do this and you don't do that. You you stated something contrary to fact. It's exaggerating or embellishing the truth. Or we lie by leaving out key information so as not to reveal the whole picture we wish someone not to know. A lie of omission. And God is clear throughout his word that lying is a serious sin. And it's very serious because it goes against his nature. God is the God of truth, the Bible tells us. Lying, on the other hand, is the work of Satan. Someone tell us, from the very first time we meet Satan in the Bible, what is he doing? Lying. Has God not said you shall eat of any tree of the garden? That's a lie, right? Because he didn't say that. And then what does he go on to say? You will not surely die. It's a lie. He is the father of lies. Therefore, he has always lied. He lies about God, Jesus, death, heaven, hell, God's word, good, evil, and anything else you can think of. And those who in their lives practice habitual, unremorseful lying show that they do not desire to live a godly life. Now, this does not mean that Christians will not struggle with lying, but it does mean that the normal function of a Christian is not to lie. The world, we talked about a little bit about this this morning with the world and what Jesus said in John chapter 7. The world deals in lies all the time. The modus operandi of most, if not if many, if not most in our society is overpromise and underdeliver, right? Oh yeah, I can do that, but they really can't do that. Well, it could be, it'll be this much, but it's not that much. Or this is what happened, and that's not what happened. It is sadly almost commonplace to hear a story in the news about an individual or a company that was caught in a lie and the repercussions they will face because of it or the ensuing legal battle that, becomes, that comes out of it. And lying shows up in our homes in many ways. A husband lies about what he was doing, claiming to work on projects outside when he was in reality, hiding out, looking for free time. A wife lies about how much she really spent on the latest shopping spree. 
Young children lie about who colored on the wall or what really happened to the lamp, while older children leave out convenient details about who is going to be at this event or what stops will be made while they're driving the car. And these are just a few examples of ways that we lie in our lives. But these are all contrary to God's economy. God's economy runs on truth. And so therefore, if we are going to be followers of Christ that please God, we must put away lying and and instead put on what? Put on truth. Speak every man, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Lying is second nature to the old man. You know what lying is? It's a defense mechanism in which that gets employed when the old man thinks, I'm about to get in trouble, right? It's the personal valet of the old man to bring him what he wants in life. And if we're honest as believers, we see this old man rear his ugly head at times. We are faced with a situation where we feel if we, we're going to get what we want here if we say the right thing. As long as we say the right thing, then I'm going to get what, what, I, what, what pleases me. Or you're in a situation that, well, if I tell the truth here, there's going to be some serious consequences. And in that moment, you have a choice. If we're going to live godly lives, we're going to tell the truth. Because lying is inconsistent with our newly created selves in God. God deals exclusively in truth, and so should we. No matter what, we must resolve with God's help to tell the truth. Even if that means we're going to face some consequences. And even if that means we're going to have to have hard conversations about some things. Because telling the truth always paves the path to restoration. Telling the truth always paves the path to restoration. What did Jesus say? You shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. Of course, he's talking there about the truth of himself because God deals in truth about who he is, about who we are, and how to have a relationship with him. But deceit, lying, and deceiving other people tears down the walls of trust in our lives. And the longer we deceive someone, the harder it is to come back from it. And I'm not standing up here tonight and telling you it's impossible by the grace of God to gain that back. But I'm here to tell you, the longer you push down that road, the harder it is to get back up that road. We think, well, it's just a little, it's just a little, it's just a little. But it takes and it takes and it takes and it takes, right? Lies are nothing but a house of cards convincing us that we can have what we want, but it will all come tumbling down. But the new man reflects God as an embracer and a speaker of the truth. Because the new man, if we know Jesus Christ our Savior, we've already embraced the truth about ourselves, that we are broken and we need a Savior. Now we live the truth by speaking the truth. We're doing exactly what God calls us to do. And when we do so, Paul says there is great benefit. He says, for we are members of one another. This is why we do this. Because in speaking truth, we see the proper function of the body of Christ. We are to speak truth with all people we come in contact with in our lives. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow church members, and, and every, anyone else you can think of. 
It doesn't matter if one is a Christian or not. We should give them the truth. But what Paul is saying here, that is especially important that we speak truth with fellow Christians. Because as Christians, we are part of the body of Christ together. I had this really interesting interaction um, with Chloe this week. Um, She was going up the stairs one night, and she turned around, and she said, Dad, if you know Jesus as your Savior, and I know Jesus as my Savior, doesn't that make us brother and sister? And it's this moment of, it does, right? Within your home, those who are within your home are saved and know Jesus Christ, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Now, you're still their parent parents, okay? But you are also their brother and sister in Christ. You are part of the body of Christ together. And so, the body cannot function if parts do not cooperate with one another. Paul says here, we are members of one another. That means, what are you saying here with that passage? We affect one another by the things we do and say. That's what he's implying here in this passage. And one of the greatest lies that sin will tell you is that sin, your sin only affects you. Hey, your sin, is if you just keep it private and don't tell anybody about it and nobody ever finds out, then nobody will ever be affected. But the truth is, there are people you, you just don't even know are affected by your sin sometimes because you're so blinded by what you want. The lie you tell affects your family, your friends, others you have contact with, and the ramifications are far greater than you will ever know. And our physical bodies that you live in, okay? Everybody here has a body, okay? Because I see them, okay? They illustrate this very well. Just think about this. If you, maybe you have an issue with your, your ears, for instance. You know, if you have problems in your inner ear, um, a lot of times it's called vertigo, Right? And it can lead to dizziness. Uh, you stand. You know, you're standing in a room, but the room feels like it's spinning around. The floor feels like it's tilting. Why is that? Because your ear is sending these signals to your brain, but it's wrong, right? It's lying to your brain. This is what's going on, and it's not going on. But you feel like it's going on because your body, your mind, and sometimes your body begin to react to those things. And, and you feel very cautious, or you might actually fall down from something like that. The whole body is affected because you have a problem going on with one member of your body. Our families and our churches are affected by our sin in the same way. We have a problem going on, unconfessed sin in our lives, and the people around us are affected by that. Our lies have a greater ramifications and fallout no matter how little they seem to us. One of the things we have to understand is sin isn't a harmless little toy that we get out and play with every once in a while. It is a dangerous weapon that hurts our relationship with God and attacks our relationships with others. Therefore, we have to make a commitment to deal exclusively in truth beginning in our homes. Husbands and wives do not keep secrets from one another and they do not lie to each other. Parents do not promise or threaten things to their children only to not follow through. Children do not lie about their actions. And of course, 
inevitably, we say, this is true, we're going to follow that, but inevitably, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, right? We're going to struggle with these things. So when lies are told and the truth is found out, dealing with it right away and dealing with it biblically is a priority. You and I have to understand that saying things like, well, nobody's perfect and this sort of thing, we can't excuse sin, right? We have to expect as Christians to have sin in our lives still, even on this side of eternity, because we still live with our flesh. So you have to make a priority to deal with sin in a biblical way, that we may continue to grow in God. And this begins with husbands and wives and trickles down to the rest of our families. God is the God of truth, and he calls his children to be just as truthful as he is. So number one, Paul says we need to be speaking truth to one another. Number two, Paul talks to us about righteous anger in verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. So, what are we to put off here? Paul says we are to put off sinful anger. Put off sinful anger. Anger is an extremely powerful emotion. And in our anger, we can do things and say things we didn't even know we could do or didn't even know that was in there sometimes, right? And when that anger is used for fleshly, simple purposes, it can do incredible harm. And when something greatly displeases us in our lives, anger can often be very close at hand. But in our, and in our sin, it is most often things that inconvenience us, oppose our plans, or keep us from getting our way. You realize those are, those are three of the very top reasons why we get angry, right? I'm inconvenienced, I had plans, and this is going against my plans, or I wanted my way and I can't get it, and now I'm angry. And we have to understand that self-serving, self-defensive anger is never right. And shouts of anger are heard all over the world. In the sports arenas, at the supermarkets, on the road, in online videos, and more. I had a wonderful opportunity this year to run the scoreboard and the clock at Beaverton High School for the basketball games. Let me tell you, when you sit on the sideline of a basketball game, you hear a lot of angry things. Because believe it or not, everybody's fans think that the refs are out to get their team. Did you realize that? Okay. It doesn't matter what, what color of team you're wearing to support there. Everybody thinks that the ref's out to get them. And I remember that one of the most eventful nights we had a few weeks ago is watching a fan get tossed out of a game at a high school basketball game, okay? Why? Because he was angry. He was shouting and screaming because he was upset. And sadly, these outbursts that we see in public are often worse in our homes because mankind wants his way, and when someone stands in, that, in the way of me getting what I want, anger ensues. And we make, all the, we make up all these creative excuses to justify it. We talked about this a little bit this morning in our Sunday school class about some reasons we give for sin, and, the, and they, it revolves around anger too, right? Things like, well, if you just knew what had happened today, you would understand, right? Or this is the way I am, or this, or that. But, but the, the, the long and short of it is sin does not, does not, uh, is not approved by God, ever. I love it. I love the way Warren Wiersbe said it in his book on Ephesians. He gave this illustration. A woman tried to defend her bad temper by saying, I explode and then it's all over with. Yes, replied a friend. 
just like a shotgun, but look at the damage that's left behind. And that is so true, right? We give it a creative excuse like, hey, if I just blow up, I'll be done. But look at the mess and the hearts that are, heart, that are, that are scarred after such an outburst. Once again, sin has consequences. Others are affected by your behaviors and actions. And an angry home is not a godly home. And sadly, so many Christians, so many people, and Christians included, can be described as an angry person. I'm telling you right now, if that description fits you, that you are an angry person, you are not reflecting Jesus Christ. Instead, those who know Christ are to handle their anger in a biblical way. So we put off we put off ungodly anger, we put off sinful anger and we put on a righteous handling of our anger. Now Paul opens this verse, verse 26 with this phrase, be angry and do not sin. So that leads us to this conclusion that there is some type of anger that is not sinful, correct? Okay, if you said if you if you think that's that's the idea then you're right. Because the Greek word behind the word anger here is not an inherently sinful idea. Instead, it depends heavily on the object of the anger. Anger that is given or even inspired by God in our lives is not sinful. That is anger against sin. And do you know who illustrated that perfectly for us? Jesus. We talked about that here a couple months back. We looked at John chapter 2, and Jesus cleansed the temple. Was Jesus angry at what was going on in the temple? Oh, absolutely he was, right? But was Jesus sinful in the way he handled that? No. It was very measured out. It was necessary. But he was not lashing out out of inconvenience or out of sinful you, you know, you, you, have, you have hurt me, but he was angry about the sin that was there. And it was controlled. And here's the thing. If you as a Christian truly love what God loves and hate what God hates, because that's what we're called to do, right? Then you are going to find yourself angry righteously over sin when you see it in the world. Not angry over all these people, da, 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 but just, I can't believe what Satan and his sin, you know, that he's brought, has, has done here. Because that sin is flaunted in the face of our holy God. So if you can be angry at that sin, avoiding a fleshly, sinful wrath, there is room for that. But I want to note here that Paul's instructions continue. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And he changes the word here. Because if we're honest, I think there's a term. We use this term, righteous indignation. I think sometimes we use that to excuse our unrighteous wrath. Well, I had every right to be angry, right? Instead, we're, we're very prone in our lives to unbiblical, ungodly anger. And so we must deal with that in a correct way. Paul admonishes us here to have 
what we may call short accounts. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, the word wrath, remember anger was a neutral word, right? Depending on the object of anger, it can have a a negative connotation or positive connotation. Wrath is not neutral. It is negative. It is a personal, provoked anger at someone else. And you read this verse, and you begin to wonder, does that phrase ever come to mind? People tell you, don't go to bed angry, right? You ever had anybody, or maybe you in your life said that, you know, we don't go to bed angry? You know, we've been up three nights, but we hadn't gone to bed angry, right? You know, that's a joke, okay? Maybe it's more home than I realize, okay? (laughs) There is a precedence here set by Paul. And what is the precedence here? Deal with sin promptly. Now, sometimes in a situation when you're dealing with sin in your life, or between you and another person, especially in these interactions where wrath enters the scene, um, we need to step away and we need to get some things set and straight in our own hearts before we deal with that sin. By the same, you know, when we're there in that moment, um, escalating a sinful situation does not help us resolve the situation, right? By the same token, just walking away and pretending it never happened does not resolve situations, right? That's actually what begins to build bigger and bigger rifts in our homes. We, 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 we blow up, we explode, we have all these things that go on, and we just pretend it never happened. But you know what? The next time something happens, have you noticed all the baggage from the last time comes out in your heart, right? Because we didn't deal with that in a biblical way. And this only continues to worsen the problem as previous offenses are never made right. Instead, there needs to be rational, calm conversations of issues, of hurts, and of wrongs. There needs to be a genuine discussion over what has happened, why it happened, why it was wrong, and a true confession and seeking of forgiveness. And I'm just going to take a, a little bit of a side here and remind you that saying, I'm sorry, is not the same as seeking forgiveness. There's a difference. I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry you felt that way. Is not the same as, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? I was wrong when I said, blank, blank, blank. When I did, blank, blank, blank. Will you please forgive me? We need to confess our wrongdoings and ask the offended parties to forgive us. But then continue on to understand that, that asking, when you ask someone for forgiveness, that is not a license to go back and do the same thing. Well, I asked to forgive me, so now I'm just going back and do it again. If you think that you can do whatever you want just because you know the right words to say every time, that is not godly living. My friend, that is what we call manipulation. I can just do whatever I want as long as I say, you know, say the right words, punch in the password every time, and we reset everything back to normal. Anger, like any other sin, must be dealt with in a timely manner. This is what disciples of Jesus Christ do. And it's not easy for both the offender and the offended in these situations. But it's necessary, and Paul tells us why it is so important. Here's why it's important, because in doing so, what we're doing is denying Satan purchase in our homes. He says in verse 27, nor give place to the devil. You need to understand 
that Satan is very interested in your life. Even as a child of God, even as a Christian, he wants to tear up your life and your home. He wants to ruin your kids. He wants to draw you and them away from the things of God. He wants you to undermine the gospel and feel utterly useless to God. And so he will use your flesh, the world you live in, and his attacks to come after you. And when you live in anger and you lash out in anger and don't address it, you are giving him a foothold in your life. Literally, that's what Paul says here. Do not give place to the devil. Satan has ripped apart more homes than you can imagine. And it is shocking how many of those homes are Christian homes. So we need to make, we need to make a, a stated mission in our homes. We give Satan no quarter in this house. We deal with things in a biblical way. The only way to do that is to follow God in all things. It means doing the hard things. It means addressing sin. It means putting God first. Because only then can you deny Satan purchase within your home. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is a promise from God. And we often, we like that phrase, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, how many of you like that? That's a great phrase. That's a great promise, right? But don't forget what comes first. What comes first? Submit to God. This is not, hey, you know, pep yourself up, say the right words, Satan will go away. Submit to God, and then with him and his help, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because guess who the devil doesn't stand a chance against? God. Submission to the things of God is the key to victory over Satan in our lives. So we must speak truth to one another. We must deal with anger in a righteous way. And third tonight, we must commit to honest work. Verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer. So first we're to put off what? Put off stealing. What is stealing? Stealing is acquiring that which is not ours or claiming what we want via dishonest means. And that's a temptation we all face. Little children take something they want simply because they wish not to wait or because, oh, that was kind of fun. Siblings borrow things from one another without permission and without ever intending to return it. Employees steal time away from bosses by engaging in personal pursuits while on the clock or using company products for unauthorized personal reasons. Reports are falsified to cover up missing funds or unaccounted materials. Taxes are intentionally altered to keep more funds for oneself. And if unchecked, a spirit of theft leads to a life of crime with serious consequences for the thief. And just as... Lying is not the way of God. Dishonesty, dishonest means and gains are not the way of God either. Disciples simply do not steal. In fact, Paul says they are to steal no more. The salvation of one's soul results again here in altered behavior. There's no room for theft in the life of a Christian. Whether that be of time, money, possessions, or anything else. Instead, 
God has put forth a right way for us to gain the good things he has created. We put off stealing and we put on what? We put on work. Verse 28, where he says, Let him who stole steal no, more, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Stealing is taking what we want by dishonest means. Instead of this, one should put on work. Paul uses this word here, labor. Let him labor. Literally, that carries the idea of toiling with effort in your life. God expects his children to be hard workers. Christians should not spend their time at work looking to get out of work. They should instead be some of the best workers on site. The attitude of a Christian towards work shouldn't just be counting down the days until retirement or the weekend or vacation, but we should approach our work as God's gift of provision to us. And if he has has given you a job, make the most of that opportunity he has given you. Now, that doesn't mean sacrifice life's priorities on the altar of the job. There's two ways the pendulum swings here, right? One, the one who doesn't want to work, but it's possible to go too far the other way. Because a good hard work ethic is to be praised, and that's seen all throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs. But one who cannot regulate his work so as to spend adequate time worshiping God, discipling his family, or meeting the needs of his household requiring, that require his presence does not understand the primary calling of a spouse and parent. There are times when work must come first. If you're, going to be, if you're going to be someone who works the way God calls you to work, there are times in our lives when, when we say, hey, okay, i got to take care of this. This is important. It has to get done. If, it, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. But there are also times when work is being chosen over other priorities. Furthermore, Paul says a Christian's work should be that in that which is good. He says, working with his hands, what is good? Christians should never be involved in any line of work that requires a compromising of God's standards, dishonors him, or leads to disobedience of his commands. We should be involved in good, honest work that pleases God. And our homes are the training grounds for this. Husbands, fathers, Wives and mothers can set the tone of a godly approach to work. Working hard but showing right priorities is the calling. Expecting our children to work hard and pitch in is vital to their formation of a godly approach to work. That everything gained in our lives is gained in an honest manner. And it will be gained with the goal of sharing God's gifts with other people. We see that in the last part of this verse. It says... Uh, that he may have something to give him who has need. So the goal is giving to others. Now, you will find hard work. Um, you, you'll actually find that in the world, right? You'll find people who are hard workers. You'll find hard work promoted by people in the sinful world we live in, right? But why will you find that promoted? Well, so you can get ahead, right? So you can get more money, so you can get the promotions, you can get this. It's all about selfish advancement, self-advancement and selfish reasons. God promotes hard work that obeys him. Why? As a means to bless other people. 
We do not work hard only to miserly hoard treasures and stockpile funds. We work hard looking for opportunities to bless other people. In your walk with God, and the longer you are around the family of God, you will run into those who have needs. You'll run into those who have physical limitations. Maybe they have not been able to work as hard as they want to because of them. You'll run into people who are working hard, but the life circumstances they find themselves in at this moment is a greater challenge than they have the means to meet. And so those who have the ability to work do so they may have the opportunity to bless. Very simply, do you as a family look for ways to bless other people in your life? We'll talk about that in a few weeks as we talk about serving together as a family. But do you, teach our child, do you teach your children what it means to give tithes and offerings to the Lord? Do you teach your children the blessing of giving to others even when they don't know who did it? Paul said, actually, when Paul was leaving Ephesus after he had planted, helped plant the church there, now he's writing the letter to this church in Ephesians, this, the letter in Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. This is what Paul said to them. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if we truly believe God and follow what he says, we're going to look for ways to give in his name. But we can only do this, however, if we've taken an honest approach to work. Guess what? The person who hasn't taken an honest approach to work, they don't have anything to give to other people because they're not doing what God's called them to do. Blessing is available, though, to those who obey God. I mean, that's what, Jesus, that's what Paul said in this quotation of what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Christian homes are the proving ground for and should be the primary place that we display godly living. The natural, sinful man loves to lie, to lash out in anger, and to steal. And there is a comfort and a control that he finds in sin. And if we have been redeemed by Jesus, we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, regenerated and given spiritual life, and these should not be our responses to things that we have seen tonight that are simple. Instead, we're called to live in a way that pleases God. But as we said at the beginning, we oftentimes feel safe, so to speak, inside the four walls of our home, and so we let our guard down, and we act in ways that don't please God. And in reality... You are revealing who you truly are. You are not the facade you put on at church if that's the way you live. You are what you are in your home. That's the test of your character. How you deal with those closest to you tells you everything you need to know about your walk with God. And if the look at these things tonight has hit home in your life, then I would say it's time for some evaluation and time with God and his word that you may see victory over these things in your lives. Here's the thing. When you look at this tonight and God's convicting you and say, man, I am really failing in that. I'm here to tell you there's hope. It's not a, well, you failed, try again later. It's okay. We've fallen. We've messed up. We're going to get things right with God and we're going to seek his help. You can have a home that promotes godliness and a place where the next generation learns what it, what it is like to live consistent, victorious walk with God. It doesn't matter if that's the way you grew up or not. God's grace is greater than all of that. And next week we'll look at the rest of the balance of this passage here to see what else Paul says we're to put on as we continue to live out 
the new life home, to live these things out. And they, take, they start in our homes, they start in our personal lives, in the lives of our family, and they, they, they ripple out. Just as sin ripples out and has effects, so does living for the Lord ripple out and have effects on other people. And, and in our church, we, we see the strengthening of that as we individually seek to live for God as well. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for bringing us here tonight to study it together. And we ask that you would help us to truly evaluate our own lives and our home. Help us to ask ourselves tough questions from the word of God. Help us to see that you have called us to live for your honor and your glory, to put on that which is right, putting off that which is sinful, that we may, as a body, exalt you above all else. We ask now, as we prepare to leave in a few minutes and go into our week, that you would go before us. You would help us this week to see the divine appointment you place in our lives. May we be good witnesses of the gospel. May we be disciples of those around us. And may you receive all the glory and praise for what you do in our lives this week. In your name we pray. Amen.